This is Lee Habib, and this is the day that the founder of the great McDonald's brand was born. You're still not getting any of my crispy, juicy McNuggets. And what the heck are we listening to here, guys? That's what I want to know. I know, research. That's what I want to hear. Come on, Hangler, explain yourself. Um, I have no explanation. I was <laughs> yeah, just yeah. asked to find McDonald's ads and I came up with that beauty. That's a beauty. That's a beauty. I woke up and found you creeping. <laughs> oh, girl, I know your secret. You dipping on me. You dipping on me. Stop dipping. It just ain't fair. Why can't you share your love? Ah, uh, that's I beautiful. Eat like you up for breakfast. Terrible. So in this research, Hangler, I told you to come up with as many versions of McDonald's classics as is possible. What have you come up with? A lot of bad ones, but uh, they're really good. Really good bad ones. And uh, a lot of 70s, 80s. And uh, that one, I think, is from the 90s. That would have been your, like, Jodeci period. Yeah, R. Kelly. The R and B R. Kelly stuff. Yeah, yeah. it's great. Bumping I woke up and found you creeping. Hell, shut up! <laughs> shut up! Shut up! <laughs> what about the uh, foot? I hear and see in the notes that uh, we got a Footloose version. All right, we got it. We got it. That is a Kenny Loggins sound-alike man. <laughs> I think I see uh, Kevin Bacon dancing on a tractor when I That's listen. scary. That's scary. You know, it, it turns out there's a really earnest, earnest McDonald's ad, the Being Yourself ad, that oh, from yeah. what I understand, it's really, it's really moving. There's nobody like you. No one else has your style. They would have never gotten away with an ad like this this time because you don't even know what you're listening to. I mean, you don't even know what the product is. You know what the brand is. No idea. Until like the end of the song. Trying hard to break through. Going that extra mile. Giving life all you got. Still have no idea what we're listening to. I feel like I deserve a participation trophy just for listening to it. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Dreaming dreams, making plans. Shooting points. This could be an ad for Toyota for all we know. Your best shot. We're 36 seconds into this track and we, <laughs> we still, have, still no have no idea. No idea. You get through it. You know just what to do. You're not alone. Cause you're believing in you. Don't land Here it is. You make the most of what you are. To us, you really are a star. 53 seconds and still haven't heard anything. At McDonald's. There, there we right. go. Get the bell. Let's get back to the original purpose of this I woke up and found you creeping Oh girl I know your secret You're dipping on me Alright stop Stop the madness You guys gotta get a life and a job okay? Where's Judge Judy when I need her? Nice song but you're still not getting any of my crispy juicy McNuggets That's baloney 
It doesn't make sense. <laughs> Good. That's the end of the segment. Now let's get to the real segment, which is, well, it's October 5th, and it's the day that the man who created the most recognized brand in the world was born. The man behind it all is not a smiley-faced clown named Ronald McDonald, but a man named Ray, Raymond Albert Cruck, who, by the way, will be rolling over in his grave listening to this introduction. Yes! <laughs> he was born this day in Chicago, Illinois. Crock sold the world on the concept of fast food and made himself a McMillionaire. Ray's life in the food industry started while he was still in grammar school. Here, he opened a lemonade stand in front of his house. Yet at 17, Ray had no patience for school and dropped out. That summer, he took a job at a resort where he met a young woman named Ethel Fleming. The two hit it off and began dating. After three years, Ray thought it would be a good idea if they got married. His father felt differently. Since Ray and Ethel were both still minors, he refused to grant his permission until his son was steadily employed. Can you imagine that? To appease his father, Ray found work within a few days, selling paper cups. Here's cultural historian Kathleen Torp. He was a clean freak, very, very spit and polished image. The bill cream in the hair, perfectly uh, starched shirt with a tie perfectly tied, a manicured nails. Manicured nails. Crock sold paper cups for 16 years. He spent countless hours with his customers, learning everything about what worked and didn't work in the food industry. Here's Ray Crock himself. I made up my mind that if I ever got into the food business, I would do what this one was doing or what that one was doing, and I wouldn't do what that other one was doing, and I got so that I could assess uh, values. At 37, Crock left a successful career in the paper cup business and began successfully selling multi-mixers, a machine capable of making an unprecedented five milkshakes at a time. But as Ray approached his 50th birthday, his multi-mixer sales began to slow. The one small restaurant in San Bernardino, California, kept ordering more. In 1954, Ray flew to California and met the two brothers who would change his life, Dick and Mac McDonald. What the McDonald's brothers had created was a kitchen that operated with the efficiency of a Henry Ford assembly line. They were pioneering the greatest revolution in American restaurant history, fast food. Here's Dick McDonald. You know, we were kind of getting into an age of jet propulsion, and this was really a horse and buggy operation. So uh, we knew we had to do something to speed things up. The McDonald brothers cut restaurant serving time from 20 minutes down to 30 seconds. To do that, they, break, they broke almost every rule in the business. Here's historian Jane Stern on genius not always being very logical. The idea of going to a place that had a hamburger, and if you don't like that, you could have a hamburger, and if you don't like that, you could have a hamburger. You know, it in a way, it defies logic, but, but that's sometimes what great genius is. It defies logic. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. When we come back... We continue the story of Ray Kroc and his path to success. Hi, welcome to McDonald's. What can I get for you? Okay, what do you want? Cheerios. Cheerios, they don't got Cheerios. What else? Lasagna. We'll take uh, hot cakes and sausage. Uh, sorry, sir, we stopped serving breakfast. What are you talking about? We're four seconds late. No, you're 30 minutes and four seconds late. We stopped serving breakfast at 10.30. You want a happy meal? We'll get you one of those happy meals. You got a happy meal? Can we get a happy meal? Will somebody get you a happy meal?
Welcome back to Our American Stories. We're telling the story of McDonald's founder, Ray Kroc, on this day in history. When we left off, we learned about how the McDonald's brothers took restaurant food preparation time from 20 minutes down to 30 seconds. Kroc was 52 years old. He had seen thousands of restaurants before, but nothing like this. Kroc discussed the idea of opening hundreds of these restaurants with the McDonald brothers. They told him they weren't interested in doing it themselves. Here's Ray in 1974 at Dartmouth College. He said, well, we don't know anybody who want to do it. I said, well, how about me? He said, do you want to bother with it? He said, sure. <laughs> sure. Kroc signed a contract that gave him the exclusive right to sell the McDonald's Brothers method. In April of 55, Kroc opened his first McDonald's restaurant in Chicago. Two shining golden arches and a brightly colored neon sign caught everyone's attention. The red and white tiled building was spotless inside and out, and Raid made sure it stayed that way. Here's McDonald's historian John Love. If there was one thing that Ray was fanatical about, it was absolute cleanliness. Here was a man who in his uh, now mid-50s would uh, spend his Saturdays scrubbing the sidewalk, sometimes uh, with a little brush to get gum off the sidewalk. And here's a former chair and CEO of McDonald's Corp, Fred Turner. One Saturday I came into uh, the Displains McDonald's and Ray was in the back sink and he had the mop ringer up in the sink and he brought an old toothbrush from home. And uh, he, was, he was literally scrubbing the, the corners and the crevices of this mop ringer. Ray knew this store had to be perfect. It was the showcase he would use to sell McDonald's franchises to the rest of the country. Kroc sold 18 franchises his first year, but this barely covered his expenses. Then he met Harry Sonobarn, who showed him how to make money not on selling hamburgers, but real estate. Under Sonobarn's plan, Kroc set up a separate corporation that would purchase or lease the land upon which all McDonald restaurants would be located. Ray's search for new locations was endless. Ray and his staff would scout new locations by flying over communities in the company plane looking for church steeples. Ray believed that where there were churches, there were good American families. And that's who he wanted as customers. Kathleen Torp explained. That becomes his method for locating his restaurants very early on. Just very gutsy, very intuitive. Now forget the scientific and the quantitative studies. Just very intuitive. Take that, big data. Kroc developed a 75-page manual that outlined every aspect of running a McDonald's operation. Nothing was left to, interpre- nothing was left to interpretation. Each McDonald's hamburger was, was made with 1.6 ounces of beef, exactly 0.221 inches thick, and 3.875 inches wide, and not more than 18.9% fat. The burger is served with a quarter ounce of onion, a teaspoon of mustard, and a tablespoon of ketchup. The fries had to be cut at 9.30 seconds of an inch thick. Ray wanted perfection and had no tolerance for variations by local operators. Here's Croc. You can't give them an inch. The organization cannot trust the individual. The individual must trust the organization. Any other way would be building on a marshy foundation that could collapse at any time. Cultural historian Michael Stern describes Kroc's formula for success. Ray Kroc was successful because he had a formula. 
And uh, as soon as you have somebody um, monkeying with that formula, that, I think, to Ray Kroc, would be the equivalent of somebody on the Ford assembly line saying, well, I think I'll put this mirror on the car a little bit differently. But the highest quality of leadership is unlocking the potential in others. Here's Torp on Kroc's ability to just do that. He thinks he has this great idea that he has his pulse on um, American appetite. Uh, he doesn't. He has his pulse on the American pocketbook. So he learned very early on just to leave that to the franchisees. Croc Cincinnati franchisees developed the filet fish McDonald's now sells over 50 million pounds of fish per year. The Pittsburgh franchise owner Jim Delegati developed the Big Mac, which went on to become McDonald's flagship sandwich. And Herb Peterson in Santa Barbara showed Ray a product that got McDonald's into the breakfast business. Here's Peterson. We prepared some eggs McMuffin for him, and he ate two of them. And he said, this is great. We should do it. We should do it tomorrow. Thanks to the egg McMuffin, breakfast now accounts for more than 20% of McDonald's U.S. sales. Ray didn't care who got the credit as long as the idea helped McDonald's. This was especially true when it came to advertising. In 1963, franchisees in Chicago hired the man who played Bozo the Clown on local TV to develop a clown character exclusively for McDonald's. The clown named Donald McDonald was an instant hit with the kids. Three years later, after a makeover and a name and wardrobe change, Ronald McDonald made his debut as the chain's national spokesman. And Croc made sure that everyone knew its formula. Here's one of the many classic McDonald's ads educating America on their star product. Lettuce and onions, sesame, all seed bun. I think they're describing a big... <laughs> to all these patty special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions, all the sesame seed bun. Say that again. To all these patty special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions, all the sesame seed bun. To all these patty special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions, all the sesame seed bun. McDonald's Big Mac. The big sandwich with a great big taste that everybody's talking about. Sesame seed bun, and we forgot the onions. Yes, it did. Yes, it did say onions. Are you sure? It, it said onions. <laughs> All right. To all these patty special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions, all the sesame seeds. McDonald's Big Mac. The great big sandwich with a great big taste. Lettuce. Pickles. Cheese. Hey, that's a Big Mac. You deserve a break today at McDonald's. Where your dollar gets a break every day. Brilliant. By the early 1970s, McDonald's officially became the largest food supplier in the country, surpassing even the army and the number of meals served. Ray Kroc's success earned him a dinner invitation to Richard Nixon's White House. The president greeted Kroc by asking, What is it, $8 billion or $9 billion now? Kroc replied, Mr. President, it's $12 billion. Now in his 70s, Ray began to enjoy the spoils of his riches. He used his money to fulfill his lifelong dream of owning a baseball team. For years, he tried to buy his favorite childhood team, the Chicago Cubs, but their owner, Phil Wrigley, wouldn't sell. But the struggling San Diego Padres were about to be moved to Washington, D.C. Here's former San Diego Padres broadcaster Jerry Coleman. Buzzy Babesi was then the president of the San Diego Padres. got a call from Croc's attorney. And he said, I have a man who wants to buy your ball club. And he said, well, um, how many in his group? Just one. He said, how is he going to pay for it? Cash. And he's the guy that really was the savior of baseball in San Diego. And nobody knew who he was. We didn't know this was the, the man who created McDonald's. Here he comes in, little guy, kind of a feisty guy. And he said, well, first thing we're going to do is we're going to win around here. 
Croc brought his trademark enthusiasm to the game of baseball. But, but at the Padres' 1974 home opener, he got just a bit too enthusiastic. Here's announcer Jerry Coleman again. We were behind another eight to nothing or something in the third inning, and Ray marched down to the PA, and he got on the microphone and apologized to the fans. This is the worst team I've ever seen in my life. I don't apologize to you people. I promise we're going to win one of these days, and I think these people are awful on the field, and it'll never happen again. And he went on and on. On NBC's Today Show in 1977, Ray Kroc defended his actions. I have been uh, mm, schooled in serving the public. And if they come into my ballpark, I don't own the ballpark, see my ball club. I want them to get value. And that's what I want them to get in McDonald's. And as long as I can give them value, I'm going to have them coming in. When I can't give them value, I'm going to have to berate somebody. Here's Padres broadcaster Jerry Coleman on all the fallout. After the outburst, the fans loved him for it, for being just a normal person, but with a billion dollars in his pocket. Yeah, oh, that. <laughs> On October 2nd, 1982, the Padres threw their owner a glorious 80th birthday party. Here's McMuffin creator Herb Peterson again. It was Ray's day. And at the beginning of the game, uh, Ray drove around the, the entire stadium in an open convertible car waving to everybody and loving every minute of it. It was really fantastic. It was one of Ray's last shining moments. A year later, he suffered a series of debilitating strokes. On January 14, 1984, Ray Kroc died of heart failure. He was 81. Ten months later, McDonald's sold its 50 billionth burger. One of every eight Americans has worked for McDonald's, and according to a recent survey, the Golden Arches are now more recognizable around the world than the Christian cross. McDonald's has truly reached epic proportions, all of it accomplished through the vision of one man. On this day in America, on Our American Stories, Ray Kroc was born. our American stories and every once in a while we like to bring you back to an old speech and there are so many great ones and today on this day in history in 2011 the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia delivered this opening statement to the Senate Judiciary Committee on a subject he cared about American exceptionalism and by the way Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and listen to the two hours we did on Scalia. One about his life, a celebration of his life, soon after his death. And then another which covered his funeral. 
And we do this on Our American Stories because, well, no one else does. And when he died, the only thing people talked about was who's going to follow Justice Scalia. What we were interested in was who was Justice Scalia. And so he starts off this speech by identifying a hole in our education system. I speak uh, to students, especially law students, but also college students and even high school students quite frequently about the Constitution uh, because I feel that we're, we're, we're not teaching it very well. Um, I, I speak to law students from the, the best law schools, people presumably especially interested in the law, and I ask them, how many of you have read the Federalist Papers? And, and, well, a lot of hands will go out. No, not just number 48 and the big ones. How many of you have read the Federalist Papers, cover to cover? Never more than about 5%. And that, that is very sad. I mean, if, especially if you're interested in the Constitution. Here's a document that says what the framers of it thought they were doing. It, it's such a, a profound exposition of political science that it is studied in, in political science courses in Europe. And yet we, we have raised a generation of Americans who are not familiar with it. And it's so true. Here Scalia continues by asking an obvious question with a not necessarily obvious answer. So when, when I speak to these groups, I, I ask them, what do you think is the reason that America is such a free country? What is it in, in our Constitution that, that, that makes us what we are? And I guarantee you that the response I will get, and you will get this from almost any American, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, no unreasonable searches and seizures, no quartering of troops in hope, those marvelous provisions of the Bill of Rights. But then I tell them, if, if you think that a Bill of Rights is what sets us apart, you're crazy. Every banana republic in the world has a Bill of Rights. Every president for life has a Bill of Rights. <laughs> the Bill of Rights of the, of the former evil empire, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, was much better than ours. I mean it literally. It was much better. We guarantee freedom of speech and of the press. Big deal. They guaranteed freedom of the speech, of the press, of street demonstrations and protests. And anyone who is, who is caught trying to suppress criticism of the government will be called to account. Whoa, that, that is wonderful stuff. Of course. Just words on paper. What, what our framers would have called a parchment guarantee. And the reason is that the real constitution of the Soviet Union you think of the word constitution, it doesn't mean ability, it means structure. Say a person has a sound constitution, has a sound structure. The real constitution of the Soviet Union, which is what our framers debated that, that, that whole summer in Philadelphia in 1787. They didn't talk about the Bill of Rights. That was an afterthought, wasn't it? That constitution of the Soviet Union did not prevent the centralization of power in one person or in one party. And when that happens, the game is over. The Bill of Rights is just what our framers would call a parchment guarantee. And by the way, if you get a chance to visit Philadelphia, it's so worth it. I took my family last year, the National Constitution Center, as fine a place to go and learn about the Constitution, perfectly adequate for kids and adults alike. Go to Assembly Hall, see the Liberty Bell, 
It's amazing what happened there. And you see George Washington's chair sitting up there in the center atop everything with a little sun at the top. Just a great trip. So if lists of rights can be empty promises, what, Justice Scalia, does matter? The real key to uh, the distinctiveness of America is the structure of our government. One part of it, of course, is the independence of the judiciary. But there's, there's, there's a lot more. There are very few countries in the world, for example, that, that have a bicameral legislature. Oh, England has a House of Lords for the time being, but the House of Lords has no substantial power. They can just make the Commons pass a bill a second time. France has a Senate. It's honorific. Italy has a Senate. It's honorific. Very few countries have two separate bodies in the legislature equally powerful. That's a lot of trouble, as you gentlemen doubtless know, to get the same language through two different bodies elected in a different fashion. Very few countries in the world have a a separately elected uh, chief executive. Sometimes I go to Europe to talk about separation of powers. And when I get there, I find that all I'm talking about is independence of the judiciary. Because the Europeans don't even try to divide the two political powers, the two political branches, the legislature and the chief executive. In all of the parliamentary countries, the chief executive is the creature of the legislature. There's never any disagreement between them and the, and, and the, the prime minister, as there is sometimes between you and the president. When, when there's a disagreement, they just kick him out. They have a no-confidence vote, a new election, and they get a prime minister who agrees with the legislature. And, uh, you know, the, the Europeans look at the system and they say, well, it passes one house, it doesn't pass the other house, sometimes the other house is in the control of a different party, it passes both, and then this president who has a veto power vetoes it, and they look at this and they say, uh, it, is, it is gridlock. Gridlock. You hear that word a lot, as if it's a pejorative. Plenty of other folks think it's a pejorative, too. But take a listen to Scalia's position. They talk about a dysfunctional government because there's disagreement. And, 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 they, and the framers would have said, yes, that's exactly the way we set it up. We, we wanted this to be power, uh, contradicting power, because the main, uh, the main ill that beset us, as, as Hamilton said in, in The Federalist, when he talked about a separate Senate. He said, yes, it seems inconvenient, but inasmuch as the main ill that besets us is an excess of legislation, it won't be so bad. This is 1787. He didn't know what an excess of legislation was. (laughs) So uh, uh, unless Americans can appreciate that and learn, learn to love the separation of powers, which means learning to love the gridlock, which the framers believed would be the main protection of minorities, the main protection. If, if a bill is about to pass that really comes down hard on some minority, they think it's terribly unfair, it doesn't take much to throw a monkey wrench into, into, this, into this complex system. So Americans should, uh, should appreciate that, and, and they should learn to love the gridlock. Uh, it's, it's there for a reason, so that the legislation that gets out will, will be good legislation. It's so true, and this is what Scalia was at and what much of his mindset was about, and it was about the dispersal of power, and that is pushing the power back closest to the people, and that's why you had these 
three or Article 1, 2, and 3 are so important in the Constitution. And again, most citizens know nothing about this. And as I went to a very good law school, I went to the University of Virginia Law School. We barely learned this stuff. It was opinions about this, opinions about that. But the core argument, which is why was there a Constitution, what purpose does it serve? And it was to not aggregate too much power in any one place, because that's not good. We love hearing these old speeches, and on this day in history, we hear Justice Scalia. And as always, our This Days in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all of the things in life that matter. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, or you're just a little too old to go to college, Hillsdale will come to you. Go to hillsdale.edu and catch all of their great coursework. our American stories in October is Down Syndrome Awareness Month and throughout the month we'll bring you surprising stories and moving stories this one today is about an Air Force pilot who graduated at the top of his class married a girl he knew since middle school and together they had their first daughter Pepper a seemingly perfect man who wanted to protect that perfect image for himself ESPN's Tom Rinaldi brings us this story. We were trying to have a little sister or a little brother, or brother definitely, uh, for Pepper at that time. So, Prenatal tests showed their baby would have Down syndrome, a condition caused by an extra chromosome that delays and limits the ways a child develops, both physically and mentally. I, uh... I did everything I could to try and force her into having an abortion. What did you say to her? My main concern was what people would think about me, you know, as a, you know, you know, man, a pilot or, you know, Air Force officer, whatever, you know, that, um, you know, what weakness inside me, you know, caused that. What was your fear? That he would leave. That he would just run away. I've got genetically superior genes. I'm a winner with winner's blood. Learning you're going to have a child with Downs is like experiencing a death. That's what I felt like. Like I was getting a broken baby. All I could think was, why me? I mean... I love this man more than life itself. So I had to think, what if? What if I aborted her? What if I got rid of her? And I remember a little voice in my head saying, no way, it's not happening. No way. I mean, I contemplated it for maybe an hour. He did for months. She couldn't, she couldn't do it. Basically, that you know, get on board or or don't. 
Hazley White was born on March 16, 2007. I remember the day she was born, and I remember my mom saying, you know, oh, she doesn't really look like she has Down syndrome. And I told her, you know, she was lying. You could definitely tell that she had Down syndrome. It really felt like I had lost a baby, even though I had one sitting right in front of me. And I think it was after she started feeding that I said, she's good. She's perfect. For Heath, who stopped running competitively for several months, there was an emotional disconnection from his wife and newborn baby. The turning point, I had her down and I tickled her. And uh, she laughed and giggled at me and tried to push me away. And her laughing and smiling and reacting with me, you know, that's when I realized that she's just like any other kid. She's my kid. What goes through you as you recall that moment now? Happiness about that moment that I was actually able, you know, Paisley was able to change me. The change came partially in an idea, a way to show the world his new daughter and find his place beside her. Heath began to run again, this time pushing Paisley. Why did you want to do it? To let everybody see that I was proud of her. Nobody knew, you know, the way I felt before she was born. And if I can keep one family, one person, from having to live with the guilt and almost making the mistake that I almost made, it's going to be worth the pain that, that Paisley will feel later in life, knowing the way I felt. March 2nd, 2008. Just before Paisley's first birthday, they ran their first marathon in Little Rock, Arkansas. I remember buckling her in. She was so little, and we had her all bundled up, and she was flopping all around in there. We were probably um, 100 yards from the finish line, and he saw us, and he stopped, and we were like, what are you doing? And he said, I'm going to walk her across the finish line. It was just me and her. There was nothing between us. Looking back on the pictures of, you know, running with her, that's a, you know, good memory. Look at your medal! Come on, good job! That finish was just a beginning. Over the next four years, finding time away from his work as an FBI agent, Heath ran more and more races with Paisley. 5Ks, 10Ks, nine more marathons across the country, including a race in his hometown, Wascom, Texas, in front of his family who were waiting at the finish line. 71, Heath White, and number 72, Paisley White, at 1952. How'd you do? We won. On that day, she was number one. And they'd never gotten a first place before. That couldn't have been a better spot for it to happen. I don't know if you're fast as a bird. Still, all the medals and miles won't erase the future Heath's daughter may face. Let's see. Whoa, that's a big splash. What's your fear? 
my fear is one day somebody calling her retarded. Somebody using that word in her presence or making fun of her because she's different and having to explain to her, you know, about society and then having to build her self-esteem back up and let her know how much I love her. That's one reason why, in the midst of all the races and runs, when Paisley was 18 months old, Heath sat down to write the letter he's never read to his daughter. Before you were born, I only worried about how your disability reflected on me. And now, there's no better mirror in the world. It was just my way of, you know, repenting. Chances are that she never would have known the way I felt before she was born. I went through the entire grieving process. You know, that could have been my dirty secret that I kept with me forever. But I didn't want it to be, you know, a secret. I wanted her to know that, you know, she was everything to me. Heath and Jennifer had a third child in 2010. Another girl named Tex. And they are currently expecting their fourth, yet another little girl. Hey, you're like a little Eskimo. Look, silly girl. On March 4th this year, at 38, Heath White prepared to push Paisley, now five years old, in the place their journey began, Little Rock, Arkansas. It would be their final time. Five, four, three, two, one. This last race will complete a goal, running together for 321 miles, a number with a deeper meaning. The 321 significant because Down syndrome is the third replication of the 21st chromosome. Being able to hit that, you know, on our last marathon together, it was a number that meant something to both she and I. Why stop now? It's bigger than Paisley. Paisley can play, Paisley can go. Paisley doesn't need me to push her. Initially, Heath had said, I don't want to take care of somebody for the rest of my life. I think now he looks at it and says, oh my goodness, I may not get to take care of her the rest of her life. The moment you cross the line. How would you describe it? That one was tough. I had a hard time catching my breath. And I don't know whether it was from physical exertion, but it was pretty emotional knowing that it was the last time. Over the couple of years, we'd become a team. Everything I've done, everything I've tried to accomplish, it was never going to be perfect. But my love for Paisley is perfect. You're my light in the dark, and it's a privilege to be your dad. Love always, Daddy. And what a story, and of all places, on ESPN's website. And Lucky Heath, he had a wife, Jennifer, who put her foot down. No, I'm just not doing this. It's wrong. 
And Lucky Heath, he gets a life with Paisley. Discovers a side of himself he didn't know. And, well, Lucky Paisley. My goodness, she may not have been. And best of all, hats off to Heath for admitting those feelings he had to all the men or women who might have been harboring those same feelings don't have to feel guilty about feeling the things they feel. Great, great story on Our American Stories, celebrating Down Syndrome Month. stories and this next story well it combines a couple of things we have a deep interest here on this show the first is fathers fathers and sons and fathers and daughters a more neglected part of the fatherhood equation you read a lot about the impact of fatherlessness or a father on a on a son but not as much on daughters and also the soldier's life and particularly soldiers who've come back from combat And boy, do we have a lot of soldiers who are here in the United States back from combat, many tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan, and languishing and having a hard time. And this story, well, it's actually an open letter from Benjamin Sledge to his daughter. Ben is a wounded combat veteran with tours in Iraq and Afghanistan where he spent time in the U.S. Army serving a portion of it under the Special Operations Command before leaving the military after 11 years of service. He's a recipient of the Bronze Star, Purple Heart, and two Army Commendation Medals. Ben now works within the music industry for Heart Support, a nonprofit that helps millennials battling addiction, suicide ideation, depression, sexual abuse, loneliness, broken relationships, and a host of other issues. Here's Ben's letter to his daughter. My dearest Adelaide, One day you'll ask me, Daddy, what was the war like? And I'll freeze like a deer caught in the headlights. How should I answer a question like that, I wonder? Especially to a young girl curious about what she's learned in school. Daddy was in the war, both of them. I see his medals in our hallway. Perhaps this is what you'll tell your teacher. But as you grow into a teenager, you'll have more questions. And I imagine I will be somewhat of an enigma at times. So instead, I will tell you about young men and honor. When I was a young boy, I was told by other boys that nothing was better than getting one free hand up a girl's shirt in the middle of a dark movie theater. It was a strange sentiment because I wanted her to smile at me and hold my hand. But holding hands was for fags, they said. Grow a pair and cop a feel. There's a terrible thing that happens in a young boy's head when confronted by other members of your pack. Like jackals running wild, you do not want to be left alone to hunt for fear the pack may turn and devour you. So when they ask you to take down the innocent gazelle, you shyly comply to prove that you too are a member of this pack, this tribe. I wish I could tell you that your father was an honorable man when he was younger, but he was not. 
He ran with the pack and even became their leader at times, hunting at night like a rabid wolf or an insatiable vampire, feeding on those he deemed weak or easy prey. There were even the strong ones he simply viewed as a challenge. And like every vampire trick in the book, I was charming until I left you half dead and drained. There's a certain swagger young men carry when they're insecure. Perhaps it's why we hunt women sometimes. My swagger disappeared in the wars. Some men will piss themselves. Others cry for their mothers. I begged and begged not to be sent to the front lines. I will not lie, Addie. Men died, and I was afraid. But some men displayed honor until the moment of their death. An entire platoon refused to shoot a little girl carrying ammunition to the enemy each day. That decision would cost some of them their lives. Other men would brave bullets and death to save an injured friend. One held the hand of a fellow soldier and told him over and over it would be okay until he passed. It didn't matter he was being still shot at. Some would share their meals with poor farmers. After the war, I saw honor in a different way from other men who were not in the military. One evening, a group of us sat in a local pub nursing a beer. One of the men began bragging about the sexual exploits of a friend who was getting away with infidelity. The jeering was reaching a crescendo when a voice boomed over the laughter. What a sad excuse for a husband. The laughter died, and the men stared blankly into their beers for a long moment, refusing to look at the man who had defined them. While he glared, daring them to challenge him. I do not know what the future of dating will look like for you many years from now or how men will treat you. And I know now, as much as I'd like to, I cannot protect you from all the landmines and jackals running rampant. You will have to learn to face them on your own. But I can tell you what to look for. Look for honor. Look for integrity selflessness, sacrifice, and compassion. Find those who champion justice and fidelity, but above all, seek men who emulate humility and meekness. Do not, as so many others do, be deceived into thinking it is a weakness. Meekness is strength wrapped in humility, my dear daughter. It is strength under control in a world where so many are out of control. Do not confuse velvet words and simply holding a door open as honor. Instead, observe how he treats others, your waiter, the homeless, and the marginalized. Or if you see how he treats those at their highs and lows, you'll understand how he will treat you during your high and low points. Heed this wisdom and do not become disillusioned, for honorable men will still break your heart. A dishonorable man will break up with you via text, Snapchat, if that still exists, or simply ignore you. But an honorable man will break your heart face to face. Do not despair, my daughter. For as you read this, you may be tempted to believe that honorable men disappeared in the years before you were born. They still exist. You must search to find them, and that may take many years. In your search, though, you will encounter many men without honor. Do not blame them, for they had fathers who didn't know how to train their sons in the ways in which a man should walk. Many grew up without a male figure to explain what honor and integrity look like. Feel compassion for them instead. Point them to other men you see acting in honorable ways. 
I leave you with this in closing, Addie. You were born, my heart was yours. And I wanted nothing more than to protect you, kiss your face, and watch you smile. One day, I hope to meet the man who feels the same way. All my love, Dad. And great job tracking this down, Faith and Benjamin Sledge. Thanks for those words of wisdom, and thanks for the courage to say them. Not easy, not flattering, but boy, I don't think there's anyone in the studio who didn't think a single word he said wasn't true about himself, because men aren't inclined to speak so negatively about themselves. Actually, it's the other way around. This is Our American Stories. From Blue Rock, Montana Rode into town one day And under his knees Was a raging black stallion Walking behind was a babe This is Our American Stories And you're listening to one of the great storytellers In American music, Willie Nelson And we love to tell the stories about all kinds of things And in this particular instance We're going to tell the story of a guitar Not just any guitar, this is the story of Trigger, a Martin N20 nylon string classical acoustic guitar used by country music singer-songwriter Willie Nelson. Here's Willie and his friends introducing this documentary from Rolling Stone about Trigger. I think that this particular guitar has the best sound of any guitar I've ever played. It's just... You hear that guitar even without him singing, you go, that's Trigger. He's one of a kind, and his guitar is what damn well makes sure everybody knows he's one of a kind. The guitar is going to go till there's nothing but a frame or skeleton left. There's a hoodoo about Trigger that you just can't mess with it. I don't know if he'd played another guitar if everything would have turned out the way history has made it turn out or not. And this was a guitar that changed history, no doubt. This story, though, starts one day back in 1969. Willie Nelson needs a new guitar because a drunk stepped on his old one, ruining it. Here is Willie on the day he bought Trigger. The only thing I could say about Neil Trigger is that uh, it was a good day when I got him. I had broken my other guitar and shot Jackson in Nashville, had a new one for $750. I said, well, I don't know. I, it sounds like it might be worth it. He said, yeah, it's a good guitar. It was a pleasant surprise. I'd been playing this gill that it had a tone that I kind of liked. But this one had a little more Django in it, you know. That was really what I was striving for, that tone that Django got. He did it with just these fingers. His method of playing and the tone and speed was incredible. I think he was uh, the best guitar player ever. 
And he was talking, of course, about Django Reinhardt and his playing style and guitar sound. Willie opted to then amplify the acoustic guitar, resulting in his signature sound. Here is Willie's harmonica player and guitar tech, the Trigger Doctor, talking about this famous guitar, and then we hear from Willie, who tells us how he came up with the name. Willie was so enamored with him, and saying, you know, if he can do this with two or three fingers, I ought to be able to do it with five. When he got this classical Martin, it was an easier guitar for him to be able to create that gypsy sound that Django got. Hey, that's Roy Rogers and Trigger. I named my guitar Trigger because he's kind of my horse, you know. Roy Rogers had a horse called Trigger, so. By the time Willie had bought Trigger in 1969, he had been working in Nashville for nearly a decade, determined to be a star. On Christmas Eve, Willie got a call that his house outside Nashville had caught on fire. Last night I came home and I knocked on my door. And I came home and rushed in and I went in and got my guitar and a pound of weed that I had left in there. And I gave it to a friend of mine outside and said, go hide that somewhere. And he did. He got rid of it. And I couldn't believe it was true. And I saved Trigger, so it was a good day. He saved Trigger and his pound of weed. A good day. The fire turned out to be a blessing in disguise. Willie took it as a sign to leave Music City and return to his roots in his home state of Texas with that new guitar. Here is Willie's biographer, Joe Nick Patowski, on how Willie's life revolved around Trigger. He's basically reinvented himself as this new hybrid country rock master of the universe. And at the center of that was his instrument. It's pretty radical in the sense that no acoustic guitar at that time had been successfully amplified with a pickup. Trigger was uh, the mainstay of the band. They played it through an amp and it was you could get it as loud as you wanted. The music just kind of grew around that guitar. What he got with this, the gut string and the amplification was a sound that no one had been getting. I'd seen The Grateful Dead. I knew what jam music was all about. And my jaw kind of dropped. Hey, man, the psychedelic. And yet, you know, hillbilly, psychedelic hillbilly. The psychedelic hillbilly. Here's Willie Nelson talking about how Trigger has a lot to do with the sound they developed over the years. We also hear from his biographer and fellow musicians on how Trigger was heard on the album Red-Headed Stranger. In the sky, Lord, in the sky. Play it on the piano one more time. Well, the sound that we have developed over the years, Trigger has had a lot to do with that because of the tone, because of the way Trigger blends in with the piano and the bass and the harmonica and the drums. It all put it together and, uh, you know, it sounds good. The Trigger is naturally a vital part of that. If you want to gauge the impact of Trigger, I refer you to the album Red-Headed Stranger, 1975. It is the album where Trigger 
comes to the fore. Willie was playing us the songs for the first time, and we're sitting there kind of in awe. You know, as we felt the spirit, we would play along with him, but a lot of times we were just listening. That's the album that changed Willie's life and made him the superstar by stripping down his sound to the essence and letting Trigger do all the work. And with the platinum-selling album under his belt, Willie became a household name. Meanwhile, his guitar was becoming legendary and collecting autographs from country music royalty. Here's Willie. Leon Russell was the first guy that ever asked me to sign his guitar. And I started putting it on there with a marker, and he said, no, no, take this ballpoint and scratch it in there. And I said, why? He said, because it'll make it more valuable. I said, well, great, then you sign mine. So I made him sign mine. He was the first one. Roger Miller, all English. You know, there's some more in there, but they're hard to read. Over the years, Trigger began to show the wear and tear of years on the road with Willie. Here's Willie and his bandmates talking about the abuse this guitar has seen. Uh, it's been beat up, you know, had a, a big hole in it from you're not supposed to play with a pick, these classical guitars. So over the years, my pick had worn a hole in there. Sometimes when we would just be jamming out, you'd see little bits and pieces of wood flying, you know, from the guitar, especially on the song Bloody Merry Morning. I mean, it looked like shrapnel coming off that thing. My God! How do they keep that thing together? I mean, it shouldn't be playable. And we hear also here from Mark Erlewine, who's Trigger's doctor, the guy who keeps Trigger in shape for Willie. Here he, Willie, and friends talk about how Trigger tells the story of Willie Nelson. So the hole kept getting larger and larger. So I would put a piece of hardwood in there, and eventually he would wear through the, the top and through the hardwood brace. I don't want to put a guard over it. I need a place to put my fingers. Very early on, Willie told me, I want you to just keep it going. As long as it's going, I'll keep going. They didn't want to mess with it too much but they had to mess with it enough to keep it going. That became the game. We're going to let it age with us, you know. All the scars are just part of it. Visually, it tells the story. It is the great timeline for Willie Nelson. And what a great story about a guitar. And so we leave hearing from Trigger. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And the subject for this segment, well, actually, we just heard it a couple of times right there in that piece by Stevie Ray Vaughan. He had a nice, well, pause right there. And we've been pushing around this piece for, I don't know, since... It seems like last year, in praise of the one-second pause, which Hengler worked up, and, uh, well, we're going to resuscitate it, because it seems like it's already been buried. And when we we went to Hengler and said, hey, I think we should do that one-second pause, now he went, what? You're serious. We're not going to really do it, are we? And we really are. And, uh, well, before we do, I just wanted to talk a little bit about why pauses matter. In literature, and I don't know if you remember your class way back, if you ever took a poetry class or a writing class, but the Caesura is one of the most important literary devices there is in poetry. And, well, what it means, well, here's the actual definition from the Poetry Archive. A Caesura is a strong pause within a line and is often found alongside an enjambment. If all the pauses in the sense of the poem were to occur at the line breaks, this could become dull. Moving the pauses so they occur within the line creates musical interest. A cesura may be marked like this, and then you'll see two straight lines next to each other. So when you're reading a poem and you see that, that means shut up, basically. Shut up. Two lines. John Mole's Coming Home has a first stanza that sets off in a very steady rhythm, with the first four sentences the same length as the line and the same length as each other, the fifth sentence is only half the line long, and the pause following that full stop creates a really dramatic cesura. So again, where and how to use pauses. And by the way, musicians, great ones, especially as they get older. Listen to B.B. King play when he was young. Listen to him play when he was older. And I say the same for my dear and most beloved guitarist, and my personal favorite, Stevie Ray Vaughan. Listen to him play when he was young, up and down the fret like a madman. Older, sometimes he'd just shut up. Hardest thing to do sometimes. By the way, all over the Bible, you'll see the same thing called something different. And I'm holding in my hand Psalm 3. Save me, O oh my God. That's one of the Psalms of David when he fled from Absalom with his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation from him in God. Cesur. I'm supposed to shut up now. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord. And he answered me from his holy hill. Sesora. So on and so forth. So now on to Hengler's in praise of the one second pause. And, well, we're going to be talking to someone, or Greg did, named Marty Nemko, who holds a Ph.D. in education from the University of California, Berkeley. He is in his 26th year as a host of a national public radio San Francisco radio show, And Marty recently wrote a piece for Psychology Today entitled, In Praise of the One Second Pause. He began his piece asking these questions. 
How do you feel when someone interrupts you? Very few people like it. Well, this question is harder. How do you feel when someone starts to talk the nanosecond you finish saying something? Chances are you don't like that either. After all, that suggests that the person was more interested in saying something than in digesting what you said. Or maybe the person stopped paying attention and was just waiting for you to finish. Now, in contrast, imagine that you finished saying something and the person took a full second to think. Maybe saying, hmm, now how are you feeling? You're probably feeling the person thought your statement was worth pondering and more foundational that you were taken seriously, which we all want. Well, we had our American Stories' Greg Hengler ask Marty, what would we say to someone who just likes to talk and never takes that breath? Or how would we respond to somebody who consistently interrupts us? Here's Marty's answer. It's very difficult to change people, but I am a big believer in giving tactfully dispensed unwanted advice. So if somebody really is interrupting me all the time, I would, in a very tactful and simple way, say, I really'd like to finish. And if you watch CNN or you watch any kind of TV or radio show, you'll see that the experienced guests who are on panels, if there is one of their um, panelists is interrupting all the time, they'll say something like, I allowed you to finish, please allow me. And do that in that very calm way. You pay a price no matter what. You pay a price if you ignore it. But you pay a bigger price if you're constantly ignored. And again, it depends on the situation. If you're getting interviewed for a job, I'm not sure you're going to want to interrupt the interviewer and say, to tell the interrupter, would you please stop interrupting me? But in more common situations where the risk-reward ratio is better, it may be worth offering a bit of gentle feedback. We know a man who adheres to a four-sentence rule. This involves speaking approximately four sentences and then waiting to see if the listener wants to hear more. He does this because we often say more than our listener wants to hear. Is this rule basically a different take compared to your one-second pause suggestion? It's a very different rule, and I find that uh, too rigid. That's the rule of how long you should talk. I'm much more in favor of what I call the traffic light rule. During the first 30 seconds of an utterance, your light is green. The person is paying attention, uh, not overwhelmed with content. During the second 30 seconds of an utterance, your light is yellow. There's an increased chance that the person is wishing you would stop or indeed has something that he or she wants to say. At the 60-second mark, you occasionally uh, want to run a red light, which is, uh, but usually you want to stop. So I think that gives a little more flexibility than four sentences because sometimes things take less than four sentences and sometimes more. Boy, these are really good rules to live by, actually. Never really thought about that before. I think I've got like a nine-minute rule. i got to really work on this. Man. Here's Marty on a pet peeve he has involving conversation. Narcissism. Normally in a conversation, it is like a ping-pong game. You want to spend roughly half the time with the ball in your court. Roughly, it's more like 40 to 60% in a conversation. And very many people violate the rule in either direction. They're either narcissistic and they will talk about 80 or 90% of the time and never ask a question about you. Or if they do, it's obligatory, and then they're, but they're really not paying attention. They're only half listening. Or on the other hand, of course, there are people who have difficulty speaking up and who talk 20, 10 to 20% of the time. So a nice rule of thumb is to go for roughly 40 to 60% of the time using the traffic light rule and using the one second pause. But I would be full of BS if I said that was very easy to change. It is very difficult to change a natural habit of interrupting, talking at too great length, 
and uh, not pausing. Well, so far we have chose to cut out Greg's question to Marty. But for this one, we will be including Greg's question because it's a personal one. But wait for it. So is Marty's answer. I don't necessarily consider myself a narcissist, but I, I know that I struggle with returning the favor when somebody asks me a question. You know, how was your day? What did you do this weekend? A lot of times I'll give them an answer, and then I won't say, well, how was yours? And then I walk away, and I can, it's usually four or five minutes later, I'm like, oh, man, I did it again. I didn't ask them. I just must come off as just selfish. Yeah, well, that's what the narcissist thing is about. It becomes <laughs> not high enough priority that while you count, so does your conversation partner. Ouch. That stung. Greg asked for some clarity. So I fall into the narcissist's carry. Well, it's too strong. I mean, okay. you're way ahead of the game because you're concerned about it. You're aware about it. You're in that interim transition period from when you are unaware and just oblivious and continue to blather on and a full conversation partner. So I would bet that you will do fine. It's, you're, you're just in that transition period. You're not a narcissist. There you go, folks. None of us here have perfected the art of dialogue and thought this would be a piece of advice we could all put in our back pocket and actually use in praise of the one-second pause. And don't forget, 30 seconds, green light, 45 seconds, yellow light. You go past a minute and don't let the other guy talk. You got a problem. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. is our American stories, and we love talking about cars on this show and the freedom they grant us, freedom to work, play, move about. The cars aren't only good for work and road trips, they're also necessary for war. The legendary military Jeep is over 75 years old, and here's our correspondent John Woods bringing us the story behind the story of that icon's early years. World War II war correspondent Ernie Pyle said of it, It does everything. It goes everywhere. It's as faithful as a dog, strong as a mule, and agile as a goat. It constantly carries twice what it was designed for, and it keeps on going. It doesn't even ride so badly after you get used to it. It was the workhorse of the U.S. Army for nearly 30 years. And it was created to do one thing, and one thing only. Defend the American Dream. Because this dream, like every other dream of a free people, was threatened, the men of my country went to war. The automobiles of the times of peace were stopped. They were stored away for the duration. A new kind of army mule on wheels was needed to keep up with the motor divisions that took to the highway. And that's what I was going to be. It was the Willis Overland MB, soon to be known the world over as the Jeep. In 
1940, the U.S. Army saw war on the horizon, with every type of terrain imaginable, from bombed out roads to fields, swamps, rivers, coastal sands, even rocky mountains. And the Army needed a new set of wheels to carry it to victory. That vehicle would be a light reconnaissance vehicle, and the Army put out a call to all 135 American automakers to bid on it. But there was a catch. They were given just three weeks to submit their plans. Only two companies attempted to put together a bid in those three weeks, Bantam and Willis. And it took Bantam until just minutes before the deadline to submit their bid. But by a close shave, Bantam won the contract to produce the prototype. It turned out that winning the bid was only the first battle in a long war. As government officials told Bantam, they would have only 49 days to produce a working prototype. That's taking a vehicle in concept and producing a prototype and have it delivered in 49 days. And if you didn't get it there on time, you were going to be fined per day by the government. A hard job for any company, but all the harder for Bantam, which was on the verge of bankruptcy. Most of the records indicate that they had about, uh, in 1940, had about 15 people working at the factory, and that 15 includes the executives. As lacking in parts as it was in staff, Bantam desperately did all it could to meet the 49-day deadline. If they didn't have it on the shelf and they couldn't find it easily, they would send people out to forage and pick up whatever they had, bring it back into the shop and modify it. With only half an hour until the deadline of 5 p.m. September 23, 1940, the Bantam prototype, named the Bantam Reconnaissance Vehicle, or BRC, drove onto the Army's Aberdeen Proving Grounds, ready for testing. One of the testers that was there said, uh, when we get a vehicle in here, um, if, uh, if it has anything to confess, it confesses. Well, this Bantam prototype said all the right things. It had a wheelbase of less than 75 inches, a height less than 36 inches, with the required folding windshield down. It could travel at speeds up to 50 miles per hour in four-wheel drive, in third gear, with three bucket seats, carrying 600 pounds in a square frame with blackout lights. But all those requirements made the Bantam prototype look just plain weird. No, I wasn't too proud of myself back there at the start when the Army first looked me over. Can this be an automobile, men wondered? Looks more like a four-wheel beetle, one of them said. That weird-looking vehicle was also nearly 600 pounds overweight. And just like that, the Bantam prototype was about to become another Army 4F washout, deemed unfit for military service. Bantam had designed, with desperate ingenuity and actual scrap metal, a brand new style of vehicle. And in only 49 days, an incredible feat. But it wasn't enough. It was just too heavy. Just then, an army officer who happened to be at the proving ground that day, a bear of a man by all accounts, said, if two men can take it out of a ditch, we need it. And at that, he walked over to the vehicle 
put both hands under the bumper and lifted the back end off the ground. It might have been too heavy, but it was still light enough. The Bantam prototype would live to fight another day. And the Bantam executives thought the all but inevitable government contract would save the company too. But they couldn't have been more wrong. Despite approving the Bantam design, the Army had misgivings about whether Bantam, with one foot in the grave, could handle production on a war footing. The Quartermaster Corps was saying, we have a war to win, and we're not worried about what's fair necessarily, but we need the biggest guy, the best guy, to get this on time and delivered in a quality fashion, and therefore they went with the larger companies. Willis and Ford took the original Bantam design and integrated their own design elements with it. The final result? The Willis Overland MB, military model B. It had a 60 horsepower engine that could reach a top speed of 65 miles per hour and travel for over 300 miles on just one tank of gas. It could be jumped out of a plane, driven through a river, floated onto a beach, or driven off a four foot high floating dock and it would keep on going. The Willis MB was racing out of factories at the rate of one every 90 seconds. Nearly 700,000 by the end of the war. And everyone began to take note of the new, ubiquitous, and unique looking Willis MB. And soon it became known as the Jeep. Many people have guessed as to the true origins of the name, including the Jeep itself. From the word general purpose, they took the G and the P. They called me Jeep. It sounded more like a noise than a name. However, soldiers most likely first used the name in reference to the Popeye character, Eugene the Jeep, who is known for his resilience, who could go anywhere and do anything. Hey, what have you got there, Lou? Happy birthday, Popeye. This is Eugene the Jeep from After earning its place in the American automotive pantheon, the first post-war version was called the CJ, Civilian Jeep, and marketed as an all-around farm workhorse. Yes, here comes the parade of Willis Jeeps and utility vehicles. What's the next new job they can do? The next new job for four-wheel drive. North, south, east and west, in cities, in industries, and on farms, wherever there's work to be done and the will to do it, you'll find new uses and new markets for the world's most useful vehicles. Lewis Overland was eventually bought and is now owned by Chrysler, who kept the CJ family in production until 1986, when it was reimagined as the Jeep Wrangler. The Jeep once created to carry men to victory in the harshest conditions imaginable, has since won its place in the hearts of Americans as an icon of American automotive ingenuity. Remember, there's a Jeep for your job.
And great job by John Woods and the whole team. And a side note on the Jeep, it actually received a Purple Heart after successfully surviving two beach landings. And General George Marshall called the Jeep America's greatest contribution to modern warfare. And those aren't small words from America's top general during World War II. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, the origins of the Jeep. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all of our stories. And boy, we tell a lot of them about all kinds of things. And just one last thing. The gas tank was under the driver's seat of the Jeep, and it was there for a reason. To minimize the number of possible vehicle crippling shots. So killing the driver was the only major target. This is Our American Stories.